Simon Wollstonecroft is a drummer from Manchester. His first band at school was with Ian Brown and John Squire. His second band became The Smiths. He played with The Fall for 11 years and continues to play drums for Manchester bands today. Johnny Marr nicknamed him Funky Sai. This is Funky Sai's A to Z of Manchester. Hello Simon, how are you? I'm very well, Jackie. How are you this week? Yes, I'm good. Now, I've been reading in the paper today about the Loch Ness Monster and the, you know, maybe more sightings. What are your thoughts on the Loch Ness Monster? I think it's a load of codswallop. What? <laughs> well, I'm sure um, they've got the technology now, the Navy or whatever, to, to find Who's getting the Navy involved? <laughs> Nobody's got the money to get the Navy involved. As a man with a pair of binoculars, that's well, as scientific as it's getting. When was the last picture you saw of it, apart from that one in the twenties of them car tires? <laughs> oh, is that what you think it was? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bit that somebody stuck on the end, as I No, but wasn't there one in the sixties as well? I thought there was one from the sixties. Possibly. So you don't think there's anything living in Loch Ness? No, I don't. I'm not really a conspiracy theory, um, well, fan really. You right. know what I mean? I do believe there's a, a Illuminati. Right, well, we're not going down that road. Let's <laughs> let's stick with the Loch Ness first and get that sorted. OK. So why don't you think it's real? I just think it's maybe the shorter news on that day. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to draw a bit of attention for tourism, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, they must do all right out of it. Oh, I think they do. That and Glen Eagles, that's just down the road, is it? The golf club. Yeah, but that's an actual thing. I know, but the tourists <laughs> will come flocking in, get an ice cream, have a look for Nessie. But Take uh, a ticket off your bucket list if you want. <laughs> so you don't believe in it. And I thought you were a fan of Jacques Cousteau, so I thought you'd be all about everything underwater. And I am. Um, and I did want to be a marine bi biologist. And that's why I went to South Trafford. But the, uh, the music took over, so I never followed it up. Well, yeah, I would have loved to have done that, you know, sailing around the world, uh, diving off the back of a boat, discovering new life. And, and discovering Nessie. You could so, have been the man to do that. Why didn't he go there, Jack, when he was around and have a look for Nessie? Exactly. So, so it's no to Nessie then, is what you're saying? I, th I don't think there's such a thing. Oh, Simon, <laughs> I'm very disappointed. <laughs> First K is King Street in Manchester. Great street, reminds me of Glasgow, the bit where it goes up towards uh, Vivian Westwood shop up there. And also sometimes a bit like uh, San Francisco as well, you know, parts of it. And it's a great building, the very, I love the stone work on the buildings. But there was a guy called Richard Cram. He was a fashion guru. He, he went over to LA, got loads of ideas from, uh, you know, Hollywood about the latest fashion. He had a shop on King Street. His first shot, though, was on uh, St. Anne's Arcade, which, uh, I, again, I couldn't really afford to buy much stuff off him. <laughs> uh, I did go in and get a couple of pieces, and he was a lovely fella. I think he went to Sale Grammar. I'm not sure if he was from Round Sale, but but he was the tallest man I ever met. He was actually seven and a half foot, he was. And I used to see him driving round in the little three series BMW. It looked like he was sat in the back seat. <laughs> uh, you know, just, just, it didn't look right, you know, in them little three series <laughs> back then. 
but yeah, he, he, he did very well for himself and uh, he used to shut the shop. He had the uh, stones in there, prints one day. Wow. When he was playing in Manchester, Bruce Springsteen. Lots of people he used to dress Tony Wilson. I'd say Richard Krem was the best dressed man in Manchester, in my opinion. Uh, he really was. So, uh, yeah, I bought a couple of bits off him. Yeah, it is a nice part of town for shopping. Um, starts off where Kendall's is on Deansgate. It's probably about a third of a mile long, a quarter of a mile maybe, and goes right up a, a hill towards... Uh, There's sort of restaurants at the top part. Yeah, um, Rio We're, Ferdinand. Yeah. Uh, he's, well, I don't know if it still is, but he's got an Italian place up there, hasn't he? Yeah, and Jamie Oliver had a place there, didn't he, as Yeah, well? he did. And uh, what's Liam Gallagher's clothes uh, brand? Pretty Green was there. Yeah, I think they're still there, although I don't think he's got anything to do with them, has he? I'm not that keen on them anyway, Pretty Green stuff, if I'm honest. Don't start a fight with Liam Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of King Street was always the place that you went, because you had Market Street, which is the main shopping area of, of Manchester. Yes. So that had all the Debenhams and, the, the, you Department know. Department stores. Yeah, and that yeah. sort of thing. And obviously the Arndale was there. But King Street was where you had your, it was high-end shopping, wasn't it? Yes. I uh, mean, some of the shops you had to buzz to be... That's right, the jewellers down there. When I was finally able to afford a nice watch, <laughs> I bought it down there and to take it in to be serviced. My friend used to work in Hobbs on King Street. Yeah, I remember Hobbs. Yes. Yeah, I no. bought a pair of shoes once or twice in there. And, of course, the hairdresser was on... Vidal Sassoon. That was, for, that was just off King Street, wasn't it? Was it? it? So yeah. They've got the Gotham Hotel there now. I've never stayed there, but I've been inside it. And, it, you know, it looks great. Yeah. I just like the position of it on the top of the hill there. So, uh, yeah, I like King Street. My next K is an album called Curious Orange. It's spelt with a K by The Fall, which was recorded at uh, Sweet 16 Studios in Rochdale. It used to be Cargo before that. It's 1988, and it's not a bad album, actually. It's got a you know few good tracks on it like Cab It Up, Curious the theme from Curious Orange, uh, New Big Prince, which uh, you know you see again and again on the internet when we performed Big Big New Prince <laughs> on the Granada TV show with Tony Wilson at Granada. Wrong place, right times, another one, which I quite like off it. Mark basically wrote a ballet around it using the Michael Clark Dance Company. Uh, Michael's from Aberdeen, great dancer, the enfant terrible of the ballet world. But uh, he is very good, lovely uh, lad, very softly spoken he is, Michael. He was lovely, he was in Hey Luciani, wasn't he? So he had a part in that. What was he in that? Do you remember? Well, I don't know whether he just came on and did a bit of dancing. Bit of a dance, yeah. My memory's a bit hazy, to be fair. Yeah, but, me too. But he was definitely involved. But he had um, ballet members from the Ballet Rambert, very esteemed, you know, dance company, doing this ballet. It was loosely based on the life of Prince William of Orange. And it had a lot to do with um, Catholics and Protestants and the separation between them. This was sort of 300 years ago. But there was all sorts of mad things in it. It was great. It was more like a gig, really, than a ballet. But we played, we played at Sadler's Wells for a week or maybe two weeks. 
which was uh, real good fun. We were staying in Earl's Court um, in Diggs with Dianette. They were doing the sound every night. It was a bit like clocking on, though, as opposed to a normal gig. You know, he had to be there. This is what time the run-through starts. We're using a clip track for the first time, you know, to keep time, because the dancers needed it spot on every night, of course. You know, the people seem to like it. Yeah, I was going to say, how was it, uh, you know, what was the response like to it? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of noise after the, the Hoi Polloi liked it and all the foul fans liked it too. Because you wouldn't imagine people going to the ballet would really have even heard of the fall. A lot of them wouldn't have done, no. They'd probably some of them got a shock. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we got, we'd go out after, and this is where I um, came across... Um, Dex's Midnight Runners, the singer Kevin Rowland in a dress in the Harlequin pub round the back, which I thought, wow, you know, each to the own. Okay. <laughs> and he hadn't been to see the ballet, no. Yeah, he wanted it on. There's a few people there that came to. Uh, Mark Shaw from Then Jericho turned up. He was mate of JT's, our, Lon- our London roadie, and uh, he seemed to have a really nice time. <laughs> you know, he likes to party back then, he did. Well, we all did, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Was the album written for the ballet or was it just, it was a normal album and then he sort of adapted it and turned it into a ballet? How did it work? I think he, Mark adapted the recording of I Am Curious Orange to go with the ballet. And it, it was late 88, it kept, we, we performed it. First time we performed it was Amsterdam in a theatre there. Because it was, you know, William of Orange, this kind of a Dutch connection. And the Queen of Holland came on the opening night, I think. We, we wow. all met her. She went down the line, you know. But I didn't know she, she was the Queen. <laughs> Did the Crown not give it away? <laughs> yeah. I'm not was sure it, whether she had one, actually. And was it well received abroad? Yeah, they loved it. They lapped it up. And then we did it again in, uh, in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival in the King's Theatre, and that was a good laugh as well. You know, all staying in uh, Edinburgh. We went to the Hellfire Club on Princess Street. That was really good. How long were you playing for each night? Well, it, it was in two halves, or maybe even three pieces, you know, with an intermission, so you could go and get a drink, <laughs> which suited us, you know. But, so, yeah, we'd clock off and then go back to the flat or... Uh, I, I stayed with a, uh, one of the ballet girls, Helen, a couple of times. Yeah, it was, it was an exciting time, that. And th- th- I think it's a good album, you know, still. You know, I, I do play a couple of the tracks off it. As I said, I don't really play the fall stuff anymore. How was it received by the rest of the band when Mark said, I want to do a ballet? Well, we just went with it, you know, as usual. As long as the money was being paid into the account... We just did whatever he said, you know, within reason. But I, I thought it was really interesting. So we'd done the Hey Luciani play, and now we're doing a ballet, of all things, at Sadler's Wells. So, uh, yeah, I've got good memories of the old, old affair. <laughs> really good. So what's your next, Kay? It's Kurt Cobain, singer of Nirvana, of course who offered the band the fall some European dates. I don't know whether Manchester was pencilled in or not. I know Italy was. But this is... Uh, it, well, it never happened because, you know, he ended his life, which was uh, pretty tragic. 
he was a big fan of the fall, Kurt Cobain. And in fact, I think it, we were in Germany once, and I don't remember this, but they supported us uh, in a little club somewhere when they had nothing. They're travelling around in, in a van all over, you know, Europe. But Bricks Smith, she felt sorry for him and gave him all our sandwiches, Chris, <laughs> from the rider. Later on, we were in Los Angeles in the tour bus on Sunset Strip, parts outside the Whiskey or the other one that everybody plays. And uh, I was in the back lounge at the time, but um, Matt, Kurt Cobain and, and Courtney Love wanted to come on the bus to meet Mark. And Mark said, tell him to get lost. <laughs> and Steve uh, Hanley, uh, the bass player of the fall, he, he had to go and tell him, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't want to see you sort of thing. But uh, they did offer us some gigs anyway, despite that snub <laughs> off Mark. But it, uh, it just wasn't to be. I quite like Nirvana, you know, this, yeah. that, that first album, Nevermind. Mm. Whenever I meet other drummers, we don't talk about, well, what kit have you got? I'll say to them, who's best, Taylor Hawkins or Dave Grohl? More often than not, they'll go Taylor Hawkins, which I, that, that's, I think he's the better one. We did all right, though, didn't he, singing? He absolutely did, did yeah. yeah. I can't believe that they actually supported you and you can't remember anything about it. Well, no, I mean, I've missed a lot of things over, over the years. I really have. I wish I had a better memory. And I didn't help myself, you know, I partying all the time. And uh, Well, you never knew how long it was going to last. You were just exactly. trying, trying to have a good time. So you make, you're trying to make every gig you do, every trip you ever do, oh, this might be the last one, this. I'm going to enjoy myself best I can. <laughs> My next K is Carl Burns, drummer who was my predecessor in the fall. And they also, he came back into the fall, but playing percussion when I went with my 11 year stint uh, towards the end there. I wasn't very happy about it. And Mark told me he was bringing him back. And I went to meet Carl and just say, listen, I'm not happy about it. <laughs> in the farmer's arms in Levensium it was, because I was, I was living in Levensium at the time, but he was dead cool about it. I like Carl a lot. And uh, it was Carl, really, was the conduit for, for the weeds to get the gigs supporting the fall, which led me to be in the band. As Carl was always hanging about at uh, Andy Cadman's and Roger, the brothers in Hume, in their flat on Bonzal Street. Uh, it's not, it wasn't one of the Crescents, it was just off, it's not there anymore, but we had a great time there. Carl was always there. Yeah. I think he sort of lived there, you know, <laughs> rent-free, although he did have a flat of his own. But he, he brought this Nation Saving Grace, the Fall album, which is the first time I properly listened to the Fall. I'd heard bits and bobs, but when I heard that as a full body of work, I thought, wow, it's pretty good, this. And, of course, when he got fired, uh, I was asked to join. And Right, which way round was that? Were you asked to join and then he was fired? Uh, yeah, I think it was, <laughs> right. yeah. Because Mark had asked me in the uh, Salford Van Eyre, uh, at the gig. Salford Van Eyre doesn't half get a few mentions on this. <laughs> well, we should be sponsored by them. I might get onto that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, we, uh, San Pedro, we hired a, a bus off them <laughs> last uh, Christmas or whatever. Yeah, nice bus it was. <laughs> Thanks, Salford Van Eyre. We'll do the ads. <laughs> yeah. Mark asked me first, and then Carl got the news. I think he had a couple more gigs, and I'd not had time to rehearse with them or... I had to have me noticing at work, that's it, in the canteens in Bolton where I was 
cooking egg and chips. And how did Carl take it, do you know? He was dead cool about it, because I saw him after I'd got the gig, walking down through Hume or town or somewhere, and he was congratulating me. And I was really fond of Carl. He was out of the picture for uh, all those years until he came back in the early 90s. And he was great, actually, what he was playing. Um, he had, you know, octopads, Tim Barley, uh, a couple of, you know, shakers and tambourine. And it was great, the two of us like that. I never wanted to have another drummer sat on a drum kit next to me because, you know, I wanted to be driving the bus. But <laughs> he did come back and uh, it was about 19... It was the Middle Class Revolt album with The Fall. I think it was 95. I've been on holiday with my dad to Tunisia for a week, come back, and well, I'll get in touch with Steve, you know. We didn't have mobiles then, I don't think. Rang his house and his missus answered, don't you know, they're recording in Wales. And I thought, oh, God, you know, he wouldn't do that, would he? <laughs> so I got him a Golf GTI, razzed it down the M56 in North Wales, past Wrexham, down that way, it's called the Winding Studios, in the middle of nowhere, you know. Uh, it took me a while to find it, because there was no sat-nav. But I found it anyway, screeched up on the gravel drive outside. <laughs> I could hear Carl playing my drums. I knew his style. I knew it was him, and he was, not only that, he was playing my trump kit. <laughs> to make it worse. Yeah, so just to rub it in. Which must have been transported there by, you know, uh, somebody. <laughs> And uh, he, he basically I walked in, stormed in through the French windows. <laughs> and he stood up, Carl. And he looked really, really shocked to see me. Because I don't think he was expecting me back, possibly for a couple more days, you know, from holidays. So it was like a Western. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. So what happened? Well, he put the drumsticks that he was using. Uh, he stood up. He put the drumsticks down on the floor, Tom, you know, gingerly. I said... Uh, it was Mark made, made me do it, Sai. Mark made me do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think he was a bit worried that I might, you know, give him a good idea. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's a big softy, Carl, you know. Yeah, he's, he's not the hard man everyone thinks he is. But anyway, I didn't mind because I liked him, Carl. And uh, he did play on a couple of... I think he played on Hey Student, which uh, appeared on that album, Middle Class Revolt. And so what did you say to Mark though? Well, at the studios, um, he would have he would have sort of felt the bad vibes, you know. I wasn't angry with Carl. I was angry with Mark uh, for getting him in. Yeah, of course. Of so what did you say to I him? I told him I was going on holiday. It was like he was uh, punishing me, you know, for going on holiday. Oh, I see. And ruling and, and dividing, which he did all the time, you know, like a lot of dictators do. And uh, so, how did he react? He's turning up. He, he didn't really care, you know. But I got back on the kit anyway and, and played the, the other tracks that was, you know, due to play, you know, the ones that I'd co-written or whatever. But it was a close thing, you know. If I'd gone for two weeks, I wouldn't have even been on the album. And I just thought, well, you know, this is the beginning of the end sort of thing because uh, we're still getting paid, as, you know, all this time. Years later, same wage, great wage. And uh, I just thought, oh... <laughs> interesting <laughs> and it sort of uh, well you know went, went downhill after that really I mean it's not how a Clint Eastwood you know film would finish 
just getting back on the drum kit and carrying on. <laughs> no, I know, but I liked him. I was you know, hoping, yeah, I was hoping for a bit more of, you know. We used to hang out together on tour. Not against Carl, I mean against Mark. I'm right. sure Carl was very nice. And, yeah. and he was put in an awkward position, wasn't he, really? Yeah, he didn't really care, though. Oh, did he not? No, not really. No. So he, he just, <laughs> he just didn't... didn't think I was coming back on that particular day. But, um, you know, I was shot back, and I'm glad I did. I went back there recently, actually, to have a look at the windings, but it's sort of, um, some sort of country holiday retreat, mm -hmm. like a lot of these studios are. I think Rockfield as well. Uh, I drove past there not so long ago. Same thing, you know. <laughs> holiday home, you know, Rockfield homes or whatever. What else can I say about Carl? He is a great drummer. A lot of people say he's the best fall drummer. He's got a, a very uh, heavy rock style. And he is the best drummer Thin Lizzy never had. We had some good adventures. When we played in Berlin on Christmas Eve with the fall, he was back in the band on percussion. <laughs> but I remember coming back in dead late on Christmas Day. We were flying home on Christmas Day. There was a big uh, gingerbread house in the hotel lobby. <laughs> it was about five, six foot tall. <laughs> gingerbread. Remember us tearing into that, the pair of us, you know, starving about four in the morning in this hotel. But yeah, some funny things happened with Carl. <laughs> and where is he now? Nobody seems to know. The last sighting was up in uh, the hills, in Lancashire near Burnley. Uh, he, he was doing a bit of courier work, well, that was years ago. And people have tried to find him. I think Steve Hanley went round to his house not so long ago, and he's not in that same house, you know. And uh, so I don't know where he is. I hope he's still drumming, you know, Carl. <laughs> Next K, the Conspiracy Club in Manchester, behind the cathedral. Early in the 80s, I used to go to a club called Pips, which was behind there. This was just before the Hacienda opened in 82. I think Dave Booth, the late Dave Booth, he was a DJ there for a long time. Great, it's about six different rooms that look like caves. Roxy Music in one, and Bowie, another one it'd be Indie. Um, another one, you know... Funk, dance, funk, funk yeah, yeah. dance. And so it was great, so we got a good choice. It shut down in 89 and became Conspiracy Club. And it was run, well, opened by a guy from the Jam MCs from down south who'd been um, having raves and parties, acid house raves, so to speak, in the Crescents in Hume, a place called The Kitchen which was two flats in the Crescents there that had been knocked together. You'd have all-night parties, uh, really good, you know, dead exciting. But you thought, oh, I'll start a club here. It, it was kind of quite a different atmosphere to Pips, although Pips could be a pretty heavy club. You know, a lot of Perry boys there, you know, threatening if they didn't like the look of you, which, you know, we had flat tops and punk gear, basically, and we were the enemy. But uh, by, by the time it was Conspiracy, it was only open for a year, Conspiracy. And it was, got, it was a lot darker atmosphere. It was a bit grim, Conspiracy. Same rooms, but very, very dark and very, very violent atmosphere about it. It was full of grafters and shoplifters and, you know, drug dealers, people like that. 
The music was quite dark as well. Well, it was at the time as well when Ecstasy was all over Manchester. It was. There was a lot of drugs. Yeah, it was going on in the Hacienda. I think a lot of people that went to the conspiracy didn't like the Hacienda because they thought it was elitist, which it was a bit at the beginning, but not by the end of the 80s. But either way, they used to you know pack it out down there and it just got uh, really stupid like it did at the Hacienda. You know, with gunmen outside. Well, I remember being in Conspiracy one night where they, they wouldn't let you out. All the lights came on, police came in. Yeah, that's what happened to me, yeah. Mark, yeah, at the Hacienda. Paul Massey, the notorious gangster, he, he ran the door, basically, and, he, you know, he wanted a piece of everything. That's when the trouble started, same thing with the Hacienda. So, yeah, I only went there a couple of times. Daz from 808 State, he used to DJ there a lot. Yeah, the music, I remember the music being great. Yeah, yeah, it was. But it was just the atmosphere. It was, was the atmosphere. You could cut it with a knife. Oh, it was. As soon as you walked in. It wasn't a nice atmosphere. You didn't enjoy yourself because you were watching your back. That's right. I was away most of that year, you know, and saw with the fall. So I only went a couple of times. I went to Pips more. It's just behind the cathedral there. I think it's a barber's now or something. So I went to have a look, see where it was the other day, but I couldn't recognise it. Uh, must have changed the front, obviously, from, from them bad old days. <laughs> Next, K is a band, Khalif, spelt K A L E E F. Now, this was a band, uh, well, it was Mushy, uh, an Asian lad who was a singer of them. They had some relative success in the early 90s, I think, doing a cover of Golden Brown. But I joined a new band with him called Foreign Bodies. And it was Mushy Singer, me on drums, Andy Rock on bass, and Paul, I can't remember his second name, who was a DJ. And we did a few gigs in London, a couple. I think we played at Band on the Wall. In fact, when I was doing that gig, that was the night um, I got offered the Ian Brown gig, I think. So we had a big celebration after and uh, I'd left Khalif then, and uh, I don't know what happened to him after that. Well, I don't think they carried on. Uh, well, yeah, the music was great. Again, my, my old mucker, Andy Rowe, on bass, uh, was enough for me. If he was playing, it was going to be funky. And this is what I liked, you know, he was playing Sugar Hill sort of type stuff in the set. Yeah, we used to rehearse at the uh, Witchwood in Ashton, with uh, foreign bodies. I pick Andy up from his flat down there, the box works by the canal, which we uh, used to spend a lot of time in. Drive over to Ashton, Mushy and Paul would be there. There was a guy called Pod who was managing us, and he was driving it around to these few gigs that we did. I think we played the garage in London. And it was great, you know, funky. Rapping, Mushy's going for it, DJ Debt. Did you produce any singles? No. Anything on YouTube? There might be. I've never had a lot, really. But Mushy went on to work for V2 Records, which is a subsidiary of Virgin down in London. But, yeah, after I played uh, that gig at the Band on the Wall with Foreign Bodies, I packed it in. Went with Ian then for the next couple of years, which was great, you know, had a great time. The next K is a sound expert designer called Keir Stewart, musician, 
all-round musical guy who worked on the last Fall album of Dirt, Levitate, down at Edwin Collins' studio in West Hampstead. And he was there with um, Simon Spence, and they were basically doing, you know, sampling stuff, including Steve's bass and my drums, and they used it in a song called Inch, which is a good song, actually, which Mark sang on. I think it was a 12-inch. While I was there, as Mark was always recording the band secretly with his dictaphone, yeah. I thought I'd give him a taste of his own medicine. And I went round to Keir's flat when we were back in Manchester and he played me this um, tape recording off his answering machine off the phone. I said to Keir, why don't you make a song up out of this message? You know, you might as well. <laughs> he does it to everyone else. And of course, this was coming to the end of my 11 years now, so I didn't really care if it was a bit mischievous because I think the money was drying up just about then. <laughs> and, uh, and he did, and he got in right trouble for it, you know, for Mark. Basically, you know, invading his privacy or whatever. Even though he'd done that to everybody else. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But as I remember it, I can't remember what the message was. I think he was having a go at somebody, Mark, on the phone, Sakia, you know... That bass is much too loud, or something like that. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it was just a little idea, and I thought, you know, something good might have come out of it, but Mark put the mockers on it. Somebody got a copy? No, I don't think so. He did do... Uh, Keir will have one on his hard drive. Mind you, it's a few years ago. He's probably got another computer now. Mark, recording everybody. What, what on earth was he doing with it? Because if he spent all his time recording everybody, when was he ever listening to it? When he got home or back to the hotel, you know, the end of the gig. He'd have it in the dressing room. Well, would he plant it somewhere? Yeah, he'd always plant it. Yeah. It was, he used to have a, a realistic one, you know, Tandy, American-made for years. But he always had a tape recorder, a dictaphone, type thing that fitted proper cassettes in. And, and he'd hide them? Always, Knowing yeah. where you would be seated. Yeah, yeah. So that he could listen to what you were saying. Now, how soon did you cotton on to this? Straight away. So would you have conversations knowing that he would listen back to them? Because you just wouldn't have them sort of conversations if you suspect he'd have the chance to come in the room and hide it behind the sofa in the hotel room. So, you, you know, you, you would be very wary. And you'd do a swoop <laughs> like an FBI guy. <laughs> It is a recording device. Um, you had to do a swoop of the area, <laughs> like, a, like an FBI man. But it was very wary. I remember once being in Deacon Blue studio in Kelvin Grove when we were doing the free range thing. It's an old church and there's a big snooker table there. And Mark used to whistle out of tune a lot. You go, <laughs> yeah, before he came in the room. It was like an announcement sort of thing. <laughs> Yeah, he liked whistling, but I perfected, um, well, copied Mark doing this whistling once and got and got them all, Steve and Craig. <laughs> he went, you sat. <laughs> so he thought it was Mark coming in. <laughs> My next K is the actor Keith Allen, father of Lily. He was at a gig, the Wenatchee tribe were mates of mine, in the Goldfinger plays percussion for him. It was in Manchester, and I think he featured in one of their videos. But I got talking to him about the film Zulu, which Mark always had when we were on a tour bus, wherever we were. 
he'd always have this Zulu film and make us watch it. <laughs> Dead loud. <laughs> and it happened so many times, unbelievable, because we, we were watching a film called The Yob with Keith Allen. That's right, that's how the conversation started, which was a dead funny film. Mark got on the bus, get that rubbish off, you know. Yeah, watch this proper film, Zulu, you know, Michael Caine. <laughs> but I, thought, I was telling um, Keith Allen about this, that I was watching his film, and he took it off, and he goes, oh, that's my favourite film as well. <laughs> what, his own or Zulu? Zulu. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we need a soundtrack for the letter K. What have you got? I've got Miss Jackson by Outcast, Walter J. Negro, Shoot the Pump, Sugar Hill Gang, Apache, Beck, Sex Laws, and The Wizard, Paul Hardcastle. This podcast was produced and edited by John. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by Colin McGrath, Joe Brown, Johnny Smale and Simon Wollstonecroft. And the artwork is by Lee Dyer. This has been Funky Size A to Z of Manchester. Thanks for listening to Funky Size A to Z of Manchester. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.